0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. We, we are nearing the end. The end is in sight of the series on marriage I hope that you have benefited from it. If you're not married, I hope that some of the advice that you heard, not really advice, let me rephrase that, it's biblical truth, put in the context of marriage, I hope that you've been able to take some of that biblical truth and apply it to other relationships in your life. These last two episodes are going to focus on a subject that many of us want to keep private, or we try to keep private, but I think we want to know more about, or we would, we would like more instruction about this particular subject, and that is the subject of marital intimacy. To begin with, I want to ask you a question. What is your understanding of the purposes for intimacy? Whether you take time now to answer that question or whether you have taken time in the past to answer that question, everyone who is married has in some ways already answered that question by how they practice intimacy within their marriage. And there are a lot of misconceptions. There are a lot of bad teachings that have been explained throughout the years, not just in Christian circles but in worldly or secular circles as well about the purposes for intimacy and why we are able to have intimacy and participate in intimacy and what it's for. So I want to begin though by listing for you some incorrect purposes, some misconceptions regarding the purposes of intimacy that I have heard taught, um, that I have discovered in my research, Perhaps you've heard these things taught. You know, I don't know exactly what teaching you've been exposed to in the past or who's influenced you. I will say that if if you hold to one of these particular things, then you should really take some time to get in the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true, or if you want to basically continue to maintain a position that I believe is not supported by the word of God. Be humble. Be humble. Go, through, go back to the word, see what it says. Let's take a look at some of these, these non-biblical purposes for intimacy that have been promoted by some as legitimate biblical purposes. All right, so you understand what we're doing? These are actually not in the Bible, but some people have used various verses and twisted the scriptures to say, yes, these are in the Bible. All right, here's number one. Fallacy number one. Sex is only for procreation. All right, one of the results of sex is procreation, but sex is not only for procreation. Some believers, some Christians have taught this over the years, and this is untrue. Sex is not merely or only limited to procreation. A second fallacy, a second false purpose for intimacy, is that within marriage, between a husband and wife, There are strict boundaries for what the husband and wife can do, such as various positions or various frequencies or other types of things. I don't believe that there are any boundaries, biblical boundaries for sex within marriage as long as a couple agrees on what they want to pursue. Now, obviously, there are biblical boundaries upon sex in the sense that you can't just even if you're married, introduce a third party into your sexual relationship, that's sinful. Okay? So there are boundaries that the Bible gives for sex within marriage, but some of the boundaries that I've heard and researched are are not supported by scripture at all. Another another fallacy, another wrong misperception is that sex is only for men, all right? Because men are the ones who crave sex and they have to have their needs met. So sex is for men and women don't want it or they just tolerate it. That's not one of the biblical purposes for intimacy. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that a husband should fulfill his duty to his wife, meaning or implying that she has sexual desires as well, and a wife should fulfill her duty to her husband, meaning obviously that he has sexual desires that need to be fulfilled by the wife. Now, another false perception of sex is that we should not enjoy it. All right. People think that sex, the purpose of sex is not enjoyment, and people are made to feel guilty for actually enjoying intimacy. Somehow they think that by enjoying intimacy, it becomes worldly and we are ridden with guilt because we're enjoying something that is oftentimes presented in our culture in a way that is not in conformity with the Word of God. And so our, our culture's presentation of sex and sexual intimacy is often outside of the bounds that God has instructed us and therefore we we transfer that that grossness of sin into the actual place where god has instructed us to express our sexual desires the marriage bed so somehow we feel guilty because we we think that sex is dirty because we look at the world and we view it and say ah eh, that's just not good now we could probably go through and list some more things but that's enough I think, to give us an idea of what types of misguided and I would say incorrect purposes various Christians have brought into their marriage relationship. And when you bring these types of misguided purposes and misguided understandings of what intimacy is about in your marriage relationship, it's going to be very difficult to to cultivate a one-flesh relationship. And really, for believers, we ought to be focused on cultivating a one-flesh relationship. This one-flesh relationship is what God designed in the very beginning, and it's what God expects Christians, or really any married couple, to cultivate. Uh, Let me make just a brief aside at this juncture. I think that marriage is good for society as a whole. Marriage ought not to be limited only to those who are believers in Jesus Christ. I think it's very good for people who don't know Jesus to get married and to stay married because marriage is an important foundation for the family. It's an important foundation for society. It provides a general overall stability in life. And I know that um, for some people, marriage has not been a great experience, and that is due to the effects of sin, not a problem with the design of marriage in and of itself. People have problems in their marriage because of the effects of sin upon their marriage, not necessarily because marriage, the institution, is a sinful institution. And we know that marriage cannot be a sinful institution because God is the one who instituted it. And God does not make anything sinful. All right, now at this point, let's go ahead and bring our focus to the text of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 2. What's happening in Genesis chapter 2 is a description of the events of day 6 of creation. What I find fascinating is that on day 6, God created all the land animals, and then he brought them to Adam, and Adam named the various land animals and after naming them all he noticed that he didn't have anyone who fit him there was not a a companion suitable for him and this is where we pick up in genesis chapter 2 verse 18. then the lord god said it is not good for the man to be alone i will make him a helper suitable for him a helper suitable means a helper compatible for with him a a helper who would make him complete. All right, and so verses nineteen and twenty describe all the animals and how Adam named them. And the at very end of verse twenty, the text records Adam did not find a helper who was suitable for him, or a helper who was compatible with him. Don't you think Adam was able to observe that all these animals came by, and they were male, and they were female? He was able to observe that and he would have been able to observe that he was a male and he had a certain look. He he was a man. He had a different look than all the animals and he would have noticed all of these animals and would have observed that there was no one who was a female compatible to his maleness. There was none. Now could God have made Eve out of the dust just like Adam? Of course he could have. But in not doing so, God had a greater purpose in mind. And that greater purpose, I believe, is expressed after God puts Adam to sleep and takes one of his ribs and builds him a wife or creates a wife out of that rib. Notice the response that Adam has in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is a special closeness that woman has to man because she was made from his parts. There is a special uniqueness that woman has from man because she was made from his parts. The two belong together because one came out of the other. Now I want you to pay close attention to the conclusion that is made at the end of Genesis chapter 2. All right, woman came out of man. So man had one part, his rib, taken out, and God fashioned that into a woman. So you have one person became two people. What's unique about that is that they, were, they are now both made in the image of God because man, who was made first from the dust of the ground, and had the breath of life breathed into him, that is a spirit, man was given a spirit, and then God said he was made in the image of God. When God takes one who is made in his image, and then uses the part of that one to then make another creature who is of the same kind, that would be woman. Both the man and the woman would have all the features of being made in the image of God. Now what's interesting again you have two. There was one, then there was two, and now verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, God is going to say they the two are going to become one again. So you went from one to two and two back into one. This is fascinating. This is God's design by the way. This isn't any man's idea. This is God's design and if you're following along in the text, you can see this very clearly. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, God's intention was that the man and the woman were joined back together. And when they became joined together, that relationship is called a one flesh. Flesh relationship. And understanding this one flesh relationship is critical to understanding God's purposes and God's design of intimacy. So what is the one flesh relationship? Well, the one flesh relationship is a special relationship that ought to only occur between a husband and a wife. But unfortunately, you can create a one flesh relationship with as many people as you have intimate relationships with. And so if you are out there having a lot of intimate relationships with a lot of different people, you have cultivated a one flesh relationship. Why? Because the one flesh relationship is established through the sexual union. The one-flesh relationship is established through the sexual union, but it is more significant than just mere physical uh, intimacy. So this union, this one-flesh reunion, not only binds the husband and wife together in their physical bodies, but it also binds them together in their hearts and in their spirits. This union is a precious union, why why do we know it's a precious union well there are a multitude of warnings against cultivating or having a lot of one flesh relationships in a person's life leviticus 18 forbids all kinds of sexual unions first corinthians chapter 6 verses 15 through 20 paul makes the argument that why should you be joined to a prostitute, and become one flesh with her. That's a desecration of your temple. As a Christian, your body is a temple. To join yourself with the prostitute is to desecrate that temple. Hebrews 13.4 talks about the marriage bed needing to be pure and undefiled, meaning that, or the implication is, that you should not have had any one flesh unions prior to, to marriage. All right, so the one flesh union is established through sex, but it is more significant than mere physical intimacy. All right, here's one of the things that the one flesh union helps to do. It helps to answer some questions about God and about marriage. All right, how so? Well, if you have two people who are different people and they come together in marriage and they begin to make unified decisions about their life and they bring children into this world and they do life together and they are committed to doing life together, you look at that marriage and you say, wow, those two people are acting as one. In my case, it would be the Edwardses, myself and my wife. We are acting as one. But there's two different people. But there's one Edwards family. It's our Edwards family. This helps us as human beings to begin to answer the question, how can three persons be the same God? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How can there be three beings, but they are one? So one flesh seems to describe that aspect of being whole. All right? By declaring that two become one flesh, it's God is saying we're taking two different parts and we're putting them together and the sum of the parts is greater than is greater than the parts separated. It is one flesh. And this helps us to understand to some degree, the Trinity, that there are three distinct individuals within the Trinity, and yet they are all one God. Now, marriage is not a perfect analogy to the Trinity, but this is an important theological concept to grasp, that the one flesh relationship in some way mirrors the type of relationship that occurs in the Trinity. Obviously, the Trinity is uh, infinitely better and superior to the one flesh relationship in marriage, but you can at least see the similarities. Now, it's important to note one of the attitudes that was present in Adam and Eve at this particular, particular juncture in history, and that is an attitude that we should try to recover And rediscover in our present relationships, our present marriage relationship. And that is the attitude of innocence. Note Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One of the things that we are most self-conscious about, one of the things that we are most embarrassed about is the sight of our naked bodies. And our nakedness reminds us of two things. Number one, our sin, because we, we had no knowledge of what nakedness was until sin came into the world. So nakedness ought to remind us that we are sinners. And number two, it reminds us that we are imperfect, because when you look at your naked body, you see all kinds of flaws and other types of things that you are not very happy about. And so when, when a husband and wife are naked together, they have a lot to overcome in order to be naked together and not ashamed. In a sin-cursed world, in the sin-cursed environment in which we lived, not being ashamed is unnatural. And one of the attitudes that we need to reclaim within marriage is that of being not ashamed. That means we would become at ease with one another, that we would be willing to accept one another the way that we are. And it means that we would be willing to to deal with sin in our lives on a regular basis and not allow sin to hamper the, the continuation of the one flesh relationship. Notice I said continuation because... The one flesh relationship, though it is consummated the first time that the sexual act occurs, it is something that needs to be developed and continued throughout the entire marriage relationship. So that's the attitude that needs to be cultivated in, in our marriages, is this attitude and the striving towards innocence despite the fact that we live in a world under the curse of sin, and we ourselves are living under the curse of sin. So let me take a moment now to ask you maybe some reflective questions or questions that would draw out some of your inner fears or thoughts or maybe are some things that you haven't considered yet. Have you considered, you and your spouse, how the curse of sin prevents you from adopting this ideal attitude towards the marriage bed you really ought to do that what what sins or what parts or effects of the curse of sin have prevented us from adopting an attitude of innocence and an attitude of togetherness in our one flesh relationship and you could you could be very specific by answering the question what are the sins that have affected our one flesh relationship. If you can identify those things, you need to confess them and repent of them and turn away from them so that so that there wouldn't be any sin that is hampering your one flesh relationship. Now confession of sin and repenting of sin is really one half of the equation. Oftentimes we are struggling even after confession and repentance, with the guilt of our sins. And there are things that we are ashamed of. Now, guilt is a very difficult concept, I think, for us to wrap our minds around. Guilt occurs, from a theological perspective, guilt occurs when you are, when you are guilty of committing a sin, when you have committed a trespass, when you have violated a law. But the feeling of guilt often remains even after you have confessed your sin and repented of your sin and you've been forgiven, right? Because God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all sins. Now, if you have a feeling of guilt, if you have a feeling of guilt, then you need to identify whether you have truly confessed the sin or not. And if you have indeed confessed the sin, but you still have the feeling of guilt, then you need to spend time in prayer asking that God would restore your heart, that you might not continue to hold on to this feeling, but that you would look to God and see yourself as God sees you. Now, this doesn't mean that if you ask God to forgive you for your sins, that all of a sudden all the consequences of your sins will be taken away. The feeling of guilt, even though the actual presence of guilt is not there, might continue to persist in your life, and that may be a consequence of sin. We need to get to the point as believers, and especially as a husband and wife in a marriage relationship, where we are recognizing that our own personal sin often has a negative effect on our one-flesh relationship. And this is one of the main reasons that husbands and wives struggle in the area of intimacy. It's not that their parts don't work well together. It's not that they're, they're somehow incapable of experiencing pleasure. But it's because of sin that is present in their lives, or sinful attitudes that may be present in their lives, that prevents them from really truly enjoying intimacy because this one flesh relationship binds you not only physically, but it binds you emotionally and spiritually to the person that you are with. And if you're having an emotional problem with them, if you're having a spiritual problem with them, then the physical aspect of sex is not going to fix all of those things. It will enhance all of those things if those things are well, but it's not going to fix all of those things. So let me say this, just by way of drawing all these things together. The one flesh relationship is extraordinarily important. The one flesh relationship ought to be a major priority in your life that you would cultivate that And make it as God-honoring as you possibly can. The one-flesh relationship is to be treasured. The one-flesh relationship is what God has established as the natural consequence of marriage. So whether you want to be one-flesh with your spouse or not, you are one-flesh. And for that reason... You need to seek to honor the Lord by doing the best that you can to cultivate a good and godly relationship with your spouse. All right, now that that concludes basically part one on, on intimacy and the sexual relationship between husbands and wives. And And I know at the beginning of this podcast, I said there'd only be two episodes on intimacy, but there might be three because I didn't cover all that I wanted to in this particular one. But I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your thoughts. I hope that this will help uh, just provide a foundation for your thinking. And may this encourage you as you spend time with your spouse. And may we all continue to seek Christ likeness and how we treat each other, and how we apply the word to our lives. Amen.